Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock. On this episode, we'll be talking about the latest GP appointment data and what it tells us about exactly how hard general practice is working. We'll also be asking, is the government starting to recognise the important role general practice plays? And we'll be looking at new legislation around pay transparency in general practice. Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking to Dr Rebecca Rosen, a GP in London and senior fellow at the health think tank, the Nuffield Trust, about continuity of care. And finally, we have a bit of good news about patients showing their support for GPs. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, the latest data on appointments in general practice was published last week. Predictably, some of the national media chose to focus on the proportion of appointments provided face-to-face, but there's much more information in that data than simply how GPs and their teams are providing appointments, not least that the overall appointments has increased significantly since before the pandemic. Nick, you've been looking into this latest data, and it's shown quite a lot of information about the intensity of workload in general practice. Can you talk us through what it's telling us? Reporting on the monthly data on GP appointments generally sticks to headline figures like total appointments. And as you've mentioned, the proportion delivered face to face, which is a big focus of attention at the moment. And we know from the overall appointment stats that general practice is delivering more appointments now than before the pandemic. And that this is the case even before we factor in the huge additional workload around delivering COVID-19 vaccinations. And that obviously tells you something about pressure on general practice at the moment, but it doesn't fully explain why GPs are feeling their workload is so much more intense and pressured at the moment. We've looked in a bit more detail at the underlying data and what it shows, I think, sheds a bit more light on that. The headline figures effectively show appointments booked in general practice. So they include a proportion of appointments where patients do not attend, so-called DNAs. And what we found from looking closely at the data is that not only have total appointments booked in general practice risen, but the proportion of appointments where patients don't show up, DNAs, has halved. And the impact of this is actually much more significant for general practice than the overall increase in bookings. Crunching the numbers shows that across general practice as a whole, Practices have delivered an extra 5 million or so appointments in June to August of this year compared with the same period in 2019. GP appointments alone, so excluding appointments delivered by other staff, are up by around 2.5 million over that period. And this is because only 2% of appointments now are DNAs compared with more than 4% pre-pandemic. GPs will tell you that when patients don't show up for an appointment, that's not wasted time. It's an opportunity to work through the mountain of prescriptions, referral letters and so on on their desks. And we know from RCGP data that clinical administrative work for GPs is up a third now compared with before the pandemic. So there's loads more of that work to do than in the past. And the ad hoc opportunities GPs had to work through some of that in the daytime have been cut in half effectively, which may explain why so many are reporting working long into the evening and consequently struggling to cope. 
No, that is really interesting. And it's it's really useful to have that insight into a, another factor that could be driving this increase in workload. And it obviously certainly explains why a lot of the GPs that we speak to will say that they work 12, 13 hour days often without really a break at all. One of the other things I want to talk about today is, you know, whether the government is starting to show any signs of softening towards general practice. I mean, just in the last few days, there certainly seems to be a bit of softening of language. Um, if you remember last month, Health Secretary Sajid Javid caused quite a bit of offence when he said in Parliament that it was high time, in quotes, that GPs started operating in the way they did before the pandemic and offered face-to-face appointments to everyone who wants one. Well, in an interview in The Guardian earlier this week, he was quoted as saying, when it comes to GPs, they've done a brilliant job and continue to work incredibly hard. And if we want them to meet more people, which I do offer more face-to-face appointments, then I have got to work with them in partnership and see what we can do. So obviously there's quite a big shift in the sort of language being used by the health secretary there. Um, Nick, do you think the mood has changed at all? Has there been a shift in the government's attitude? Uh, it, It may be a softening of tone, but I don't think there's much sign of a genuine shift in mindset as yet. Um, these comments have come after meetings with the BMA and RCGP in which they've called for action to stop the rising tide of abuse against practices, as well as solutions to underfunding and understaffing. Um, and the BMA is also surveying GPs at the moment about forms of action they'd take uh, if the government doesn't come up with a satisfactory response about how it will support the profession. This is just a, an exploratory poll and it's not a ballot on industrial action at this stage. But there are options on there, such as quitting the NHS or stopping some elements of work which reflect the the depth of concern around general practice at the moment. And all this could well have influenced the language that the Health and Social Care Secretary is using to some degree. But Sajid Javid still said in his Conservative Party conference speech this week that patients, open quotes, expect to be able to see their GP in the way that they choose, Uh, close quotes. And that highlights the dividing line between government and the profession. Uh, the RCGPs recently warned MPs that it should be about who needs an appointment in person and that an offer of face-to-face care for anyone who wants it is just undeliverable. And it, it's interesting that, that the Scottish government and BMA Scotland have just put out a joint statement rejecting and condemning abuse against GPs and practice staff. And the BMA is now demanding something similar in England. So we'll wait to see if that's something that the, uh, the government's willing to do. As you say, there have been some talks between both the BMA and the RCGP and the Department of Health and Social Care. The BMA has suggested that these talks have been quite productive and a recent message it sent to its members said that they are expecting the government to come back to them this week with some, and I quote, firm proposals for a package of support for general practice focused on quickly tackling abuse and aggression, low morale and unmanageable workload. Obviously, it remains to be seen what actually comes from this. But while this all sounds like a positive step in the right direction, there are some other signals the government is sending out with new legislation on pay transparency that came into effect this month, which seem a lot more negative. Yeah, that's right. Um, The the government has just pushed through regulations that mean anyone working in general practice with more than £150,000 in NHS income has to declare it and will then be named publicly on a list. Declarations have to be made in the next month or so and names will be published before the end of the year. And this feels like something that could have been quietly shelved if the government was really interested in turning down the heat on general practice at the moment. Um, But it is going ahead. 
And not only will GPs and other practice staff earning more than £150,000 in NHS income effectively be named and shamed, they're actually being singled out for treatment that won't apply to other health professionals. Uh, the BMA says the government and NHS England have broken a promise not to impose this on GPs until the same rules were in place for others, like hospital consultants, dentists, pharmacists and others who may have similar or higher NHS earnings. And overall, this just seems potentially hugely counterproductive at a time when the NHS is short of GPs. BMA is worried it could trigger more abuse against GPs, this time over pay after the previous criticism around face-to-face care. Um, and, and this approach could mean doctors think twice about whether to take on an extra role as a clinical director in a, in a primary care network, for example, or whether to take on an extra shift as a locum. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose this leaves us in this really odd situation where a GP, if they're doing extra shifts in a hospital that push them over that salary band, will have to declare their income and how much they earn. Whereas a hospital consultant that earns over that £150,000 limit Uh, nobody knows about that and they can keep it all private to themselves which all seems a bit unfair really. Yeah that's right Uh, it's a a criticism of these rules that the requirement to declare is not limited to income from uh, the GP contract and you know hence the concerns for example about you know, taking on extra role as a clinical director. And yeah, that, 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 that same problem applies if to portfolio GPs, of which there are, there are plenty in the health service and which the health service relies on. So if someone works a you know, couple of sessions in general practice, but the bulk of their earnings are in some other part of the NHS uh, as a doctor, uh, that person will be caught up by this requirement to declare. And that, that could ultimately put them off working in general practice at all. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Rebecca Rosen, who's a GP partner at Valentine Health PMS in South East London and senior fellow at the Nuffield Trust, an independent health think tank which aims to provide evidence-based research and policy analysis. Rebecca's policy interests include integrated care, new organisational models for general practice and commissioning. Within her practice, she leads work to improve continuity and quality of care for people with chronic and complex ill health. And continuity of care is what we're going to discuss today. Thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. I'm sure most GPs listening to this will understand um, the importance of continuity of care. But could you explain just a little bit more about why it is so important for both GPs and for patients? Yes. So there's different forms of continuity. We talk about informational continuity where a GP can access the person's medical record and look back at that. We talk about relational continuity, and that's the thing that I really focus on, which is where a a patient and a a clinician get to know each other over time. And you may not see that person every time. There may be a time when it's better to see somebody else in the practice if they're an expert on eczema and you've got a skin problem and then you go back to your usual GP. But what it does is it helps to build up trust and it helps to build up knowledge of each other. And the reason that's important is because when I know my continuity patients, the ones who I've really seen over many years, firstly, I know if they come back with a problem that they've had in the past, I can remember whether they've had investigation. I know if there's some kind of social or personal factor that's triggering the symptoms, and I can perhaps talk to them about that rather than treating with medication. So, for example, low back pain may flare up if people have got family problems or depression. It's the kind of knowledge that you keep in your head. 
And also it's just fun. Personally, I really love seeing my continuity patients who I know well and ask about their family, their pets, their holiday, whatever. It's that kind of contact that I think both me and the patients enjoy rather than just a purely kind of transactional. But there is also very good research evidence that, or there's there's reasonable research evidence, I should say, that continuity um, reduces mortality for certain conditions, reduces emergency hospital admissions for people over 65, um, improves patient satisfaction, increases trust. So there's a good research base as well. I've spoken to many GPs over the years and nearly all of them tell me that the reason they become a GP is because of that relationship-based care that you have in general practice. But obviously maintaining continuity of care has has been recognised as a bit of a challenge in recent years, hasn't it? Practices have become bigger over the last decade. There's less of them. There's less partners, less GPs overall. Does that make it harder to deliver continuity of care? It certainly can do. But um, what we've done in my practice is acknowledge that lots of the doctors here are part time. We've acknowledged that um, actually not all of our patients want continuity. So we've really tried to focus on getting continuity where patients want it and also where the clinicians and the practice team think that they will benefit from it. I'm part-time myself. I've only ever done two days a week in general practice, but I separate them during the week. If I need to see somebody again to follow up, it's very rare that a three-day wait is too much. If it is too much, I hand over to somebody in my micro team who I will explain about the patient. I'll tell them what to expect, what to look for. So we work collaboratively together. But really, most of the time, being there twice a week is quite enough for me to be able to maintain that continuity where it's needed. And then we also, as I I mentioned, have micro teams, small groups of clinicians. So in mine, there are four doctors, three of whom are part time. And we know each other's complicated patients. I know that you've done a lot of work in your practice to, to build continuity of care into the way that your team works. Could you talk a little bit through some of the steps you went through to do this and how you feel they've worked? Yes. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to have a uh, to win an award from the Health Foundation, along with five other practices to try and promote continuity of care. In the four other practices, they tried to do it for everybody. We just focus specifically on patients who had previously been healthy, low users of services and then who suddenly started coming a bit more. So we started off with quite a lot of analysis of patterns of uh, attendance by our patients to see which of them were suddenly started coming a bit more, suggesting that they might have an acute illness or some kind of emerging problem that we needed to focus on and sort out. And we used data analysis to catch those people. We asked their name GP to check their notes and see if something was going on, whether they thought continuity would be useful we tagged the notes and then we did all kinds of things. We did um, advertising campaigns for our patients to understand. We put slides in the, in the waiting room to explain why continuity could be important, explain to them how they could ask for continuity. We gave scripts to our receptionists so that where they tried to book in a patient whose notes were tagged, they had a little script that they could use to encourage them maybe to wait a couple of days longer than they had expected to 
to see their usual doctor. We made visiting cards so that if I saw a patient who I thought needed continuity, I would give them a visiting card which said which days of the week I worked. And we had lots of practice development meetings. So every four months, we have a half-day internal practice development meeting. And we focus several of those for people to explain what they were concerned about, ask how things would work, agree processes. So it was a long-term project. It was about changing the culture of the practice. You've mentioned micro teams. Do they involve other healthcare professionals as well as GPs or is it just a group of GPs? So we have had we have a nurse linked to each micro team. Um, There have been times when we've had a paramedic or a pharmacist, but actually we've got four micro teams in the practice and we don't have four paramedics and we don't have four pharmacists. So we have tried to work out how they can bring their concerns about complicated patients to the micro team. And actually what we, because it's been a whole organisational development, if they find a complicated patient that they're concerned about, they will talk to that person's main GP. They'll say, do you know, this person seems to be coming in a lot. We don't, it looks like nobody's really got a handle on what's going on. And their name GP will then decide, yep, I'm going to tag that person's notes so that they, the receptionist know to promote continuity. And it may be that somebody's unwell for a while and then they have an investigation, they have a treatment, they're better, they're absolutely fine. We can untag the notes as well. You don't necessarily have to be tagged to have continuity. But by the time they've gone through our system, actually patients kind of like it. And we think we had the COVID came and we couldn't really research this, but we think that actually they, they then know how to get it in future. Normally, would a patient, um, if they've been tagged, would they normally come back and just see their named GP unless it happened to be a day their named GP wasn't and then they'd see one of the other GPs in the micro team? So we've got some we've got some data which is available in our final health foundation report. It's a really long thing to um, improve the continuity in your practice. But what we did show was that over the course of the 18 months that we were doing the project, continuity with the name GP increased um, a bit and continuity with the micro team increased quite a lot more. So we made progress. We still have a way to go. COVID disrupted it, although we didn't completely lose it through COVID. So when we rearranged our appointment system, we still used the techniques that we had to promote continuity. But it's an it's a never-ending journey. Doctors go, new doctors come. We've just had three trainees and I've done a lunchtime session with them about how the practice thinks about continuity. So it's something that's got to constantly be reinforced. What was patients' reaction to it? How did they feel about it? Did they notice it and did they appreciate what you were trying to do? So some did. Evaluation of patient views on on the project took place right at the start of COVID. So it was last March, April, May. So we got some feedback. And amongst those who um, replied to our survey, I think it was 78% reported that they had found it easier to see the doctor of their choice. So are there any downsides to continuity of care? One thing that's actually really important to say, so we found this in our research and it came out of our project. Every now and again, people you know, felt really um, drained by a continuity patient, which, would, which sometimes people would class as heart sink. People who they put a, a lot of effort into trying to sort out their problems. 
And, you know, it got difficult in various ways. And that can be really demoralising. There is a a side of this where actually sometimes you've got to go and get help from a colleague and say, "I've, I've really tried. I'm not getting anywhere. I think you need to take over. But overall, I think the balance of evidence is is strongly that it gives people a lot more pleasure than it does pain. Based on your experience and what you know from the other projects that were part of this Health Foundation research, do you think if practices wanted to do more work around continuity of care, do you think focusing on one particular group like you have or trying to do it across the whole practice, what would you recommend would be the best way to go about it? I think it really depends on your practice. I have to think, I think you have to think through what is your capacity to give continuity. If you've got, if you're quite a small practice with several part-time GPs and um, you're not organised as micro teams, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. You might think about making yourselves, you know, organising each other into, into micro teams so that you can do it. I think the other thing that is really important is that not everybody wants it now. So there are quite a lot of patients that actually only come in once or twice a year. For them, that relationship with their GP really may not be of particular significance. So I think it's hard to force it on people. Um, There are some practices that I've come across who are absolutely rigid um, in asking patients to see their usual GP. I think in my own practice, um, patients would get really fed up if there was no particular reason for them to to know the doctor that saw them. I would advocate being flexible. One of the other um, lead GPs in the Health Foundation projects disagreed with me fiercely and said everybody should try so it's a you know it's about the philosophy of your practice it's about the patients you serve and it's about the problems they're coming with I would personally argue that it's better to concentrate your continuity into a subgroup of patients than to just say we can't do it the other thing to remember is it's also related to practice size so my practice is massive we've got 27,000 patients and uh, 13 uh, GPs Uh, If you're in a small rural practice, not much list turnover, only two or maybe three GPs, they will all know you anyway. You you inevitably know them. So it is it is quite context specific. You did touch on the pandemic. How do you think that has impacted on continuity of care in terms of your experiences of it? Have you managed to keep things going as well or do you think it's sort of set you back a bit? That's a really good question. So um, I think that the switch to remote consulting in general practice that's happened with the pandemic doesn't necessarily need to disrupt continuity. As I said, we we swapped from people walking into the clinic and booking in person to telephone, a lot of telephone triage, but we still preserved our processes for getting patients to either their own doctor or their, their microteam doctor. And um, at Nuffield, we wrote a report about two or three years ago about how you blend access and continuity. And one of our conclusions was if as you develop your patient pathways through the practice, as you develop your processes for triaging patients and allocating them, never forget continuity. Don't just think about get them to the first slot possible. Think about whether continuity would help them. And if you hardwire that into your design of how you run your practice, it doesn't really matter if it's remote or face to face. The tech in some ways is immaterial, you know, because I used to phone them before and I some of it is still phone phone consultation now. It's about how determined I think your receptionists are 
to encourage patients to wait to see the clinician who knows them. And it's about how committed your clinicians are in every contact to promote continuity. So I have a little patter when I see somebody who has seen four other doctors before they see me with the same problem. I say to them, do you know, I'm not your usual doctor, your usual doctor so-and-so. I really think you'd get better care if you stuck with one person and they go, oh, I know, but I don't know how to do that. And I just say to them, you, you, you have to be prepared to wait a day or two longer, perhaps, to see them. You tell the receptionist, the receptionist will help you do it. And they don't recognise necessarily that that's what they need to do. So through the um, practice development sessions and through the persistent work we've done in the practice to get clinicians to realise that they can enable continuity. If practices feel that they want to do more to um, promote and improve continuity of care in their in their practice, what would you suggest would be a good place for them to start? So there's some really good resources from the um, Health Foundation Continuity Project. We were supported by the Royal College of GPs and they set up a, a social media group through a, a, a medium called Basecamp. And it's like a community of practice that's linked through Basecamp. And I periodically get messages in through that group saying, tell me what to do. You know, how, what, how, how did you train your receptionists? And I send off our pictures of our little visiting cards. I can send people our scripts. So I would say, you know, one thing is join that community of practice harvest some of the resources because there's five groups around the country who have been working really really hard on this and one thing to really say is that there is a continuity toolkit that has been produced by two of my colleagues from the health foundation program um, it is forensic in detail it gives you a step by step by step guide uh, on how to do it because that's something that really would help people break down lots of small tasks that you need to do and um, work out how to enact it in their own. Thanks so much to Rebecca for talking to me this week. You can find more about the continuity of care, including a link to the RCGP toolkit that Rebecca mentioned in that interview in the description for this episode. So finally, we have time for our regular good news section, and I'm joined now by our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, who this week reported on an online campaign in support of GPs. What's been going on, Luke? Yes, so following some negative media coverage of GPs in recent weeks, thousands of messages have been posted to social media supporting the efforts of GPs and all that they do as part of a campaign hosted by NHS One Million. Using hashtag thanks to my GP, people have taken to Twitter to show their appreciation for their general practitioners, sharing stories of why they're grateful for their family doctors. So in one example, a person thanked their GP for saving their life after they recognised extreme symptoms um, of of diabetes and rushed the patient to hospital. In another example, um, a patient thanked their GP for diagnosing their husband with leukaemia and um, recognising that their daughter had sepsis, both, um, both likely being saved by the actions of their GP. So there have been countless examples of people showing um, their respect for, for GPs and all that they do. Um, and the campaign's original tweet, which was sent out a couple of weeks ago, has now been viewed by, I think it's over a million people. So as you can see, um, there have been some really positive stories um, where GPs have made a huge, huge difference. 
And this is exactly what the creators of the campaign wanted, um, just to show that GPs are appreciated by their colleagues and also the general public, despite some of the smearing in, in the media. Thanks for that, Luke. We're always keen to hear any good news stories from the world of general practice. So if there is an initiative you've been involved in that's made a difference in your practice or for your patients or community, or if you want to shout about the achievements of yourself or any of your colleagues, please do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice, including all the stories we've been discussing today from our website at gponline.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke and also to Dr. Rebecca Rosen for speaking with me this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter at gponlinenews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back slightly sooner than usual with a special episode of the podcast next week. So keep a lookout for that.